This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm here today with Ting Zhang to talk about her new book, Circulating the Code, Print Media and Legal Knowledge in Qing, China. Welcome to New Books and East Asian Studies, Ting, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Great. So why don't we begin, as is tradition on the channel, with your beginning? So how did you come to work on Chinese history, and how did you come to work on Chinese legal history in particular? Okay. Thank you for this question. Uh, I actually uh, became interested in history at a very young age. Uh, it's the influence uh, from my father. My father is a big fan of history. Although he was not a, he is not a professor of history, but uh, he really, really, uh, he is really, really interested in history, and uh, he is a great, uh, you know, storyteller. And she, he, he told all kinds of history stories uh, during the dinner time. So I became very interested in history as a kid. And my favorite book uh, as a kid was the Chronicles of the Eastern Zhou Kingdoms. And I read that book many times and I could even recite many of the stories in the book and told the stories again and again to my parents <laughs> when I was a kid. And uh, so, uh, and then uh, I was admitted uh, as a history major uh, at the Beijing University. And uh, at the Beijing University, I, have, yeah, I had the chance to explore uh, a lot of different uh, history courses and I became very interested in Qing history. So, um, so for Qing history, at the beginning, uh, I was quite interested in the political and the institutional history at first. And then uh, in, the, in my, uh, you know, as a master's student at Beida and the first year student at Johns Hopkins, I, I was working on the uh, penitence sewer. So it's a special kind of administrative fines imposed by the Qianlong Emperor on high-ranking officials. And those officials will find uh, tens of thousands of tales of silver uh, because some minor administrative offenses. So when I was doing that research, I was really curious about how those officials could know those administrative regulations because those administrative regulations were updated quite frequently and was very limited. Was very minute. There were a lot of administrative regulations then. So I was wondering how those officials, uh, they could get access to those information, to those administrative regulations. So I started, after I finished writing the Pennington Sewer paper, I started to explore the, uh, the history of the circulation of legal and administrative information uh, in the Qing bureaucracy. At the beginning, actually, my 
my PhD dissertation project start with the uh, focus on official publishers or the official publishers of the legal or law books in the Qing period. But I quickly, after I do the primary source, uh, you know, research, I quickly find that the official publishers were actually not the main providers of those information from, you know, for those law books. And then I started to explore more about the commercial publications of the law books and the, the, the commercial dissemination of the, the legal knowledge and the popular dissemination of legal information in the Qing period. Perfect. And I love that you say that um, your interest in history started with stories and particular stories from your, as told by your father, um, because the book itself is filled with quite a few stories. Um, yes. So I think that's, I think that's a perfect, um, it's a perfect thing to highlight right at the beginning. Thank you. Um, so the book, and you've, you know, you've touched on it a little bit there, the book that we're talking about today, Circulating, Circulating the Code, um, began life uh, as your PhD dissertation. Um, but you've definitely, uh, well, I went back and had a look at it, you've definitely made some changes to that dissertation. Um, among other things, you know, you added to it, you expanded it quite a bit. So in the book, you have new sections, a new chapter, a new conclusion, and an entirely new epilogue. And I was wondering if you might say a few words about that transformation. So what were some of the key moments for you in the transformation process as you went from dissertation to book? And how did you decide what to add and expand on when writing the book? Okay, uh, so uh, the expansion, as you have mentioned, uh, from my dissertation to my book included uh, three major parts. One is the addition of a new chapter on popular legal information in those uh, popular legal handbooks. Another is the the study on the dissemination of the killing adulterous lower law in the Qing society and the and the and the new conclusion chapter on the comparison between the uh, the impact of the printing uh, on legal culture and, and the law in England and in early modern China. So these are the three major uh, additions uh, to my dissertation. So uh, my dissertation basically focused on the the printing part, especially on the commercial printing of the code and the, the state-led uh, dissemination of legal knowledge in those community lectures. Uh, community lectures. So when I was finished writing the dissertation, I feel that there was something missing from the dissertation is the popular dissemination in those popular imprints like the, the uh, popular legal handbooks. So, you know, as a assistant professor at University of Maryland, I'm lucky enough to get several fo important fellowships and uh, those fellowships enable me to do some uh, substantive primary source research uh, for the new chapter, new conclusion, as well as the new epilogue. So uh, I think uh, the, the, the main uh, reason for me to add those things uh, to, um, to the book is that I think the popular dissemination of legal information is as important as the dissemination of professional legal knowledge uh, in the code. Perfect. So a, a match between the gap and the funding mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in terms of the transformation. Great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So let's dive then into the book. So as I've already sort of said, the book we're talking about today, Circulating the Code, consists of five main chapters, a conclusion, and an epilogue. And the focus of the book as uh, on a whole 
is on the production, circulation, and reception of legal knowledge in the Qing period. So in the book, you examine official and commercial editions of the Qing Code, popular legal handbooks, and manuals for community legal lectures, among other things, uh, to show, first of all, that legal information did circulate in the Qing, and then you explore how this dissemination and circulation of legal information changed law in the Qing, how it shaped who had access to legal information, and then the impact that it had on who held judicial authority. And on the whole, your book really challenges previous scholarship on law and legal knowledge in this period, which usually assumes that most Qing subjects knew little about the law and that the state monopolized the production and circulation of legal information. So with really beautiful bookish granularity, you show where and how people got their legal information. And throughout, you show that both officials and the common people knew far more about laws than the state wanted them to. (laughs) And this starts really at the beginning of the book. So this book opens with a very specific legal case, and I'm just going to highlight it here because we are going to return to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you begin the book in the summer of 1695 with a farmer who has killed his wife and another man. And he reports that the man is his wife's lover. And according to his account, he caught them in the act together, and he promptly hacked both his wife and her lover to death. And an investigation is launched, and it's revealed that the farmer essentially made the whole thing up. He didn't catch his wife and her lover together. The man wasn't her lover. Um, But he said that he said these things because there was a legal loophole that excused homicide by the husband if the husband caught his wife and her lover in the act together. So even though this man was a farmer with little formal education, he knew enough about the law to stage the whole incident. And like I said, I don't want to say much more about this case right here because we are going to return to it. Um, But I just wanted to bring it up at the beginning to give listeners a taste of one of the stories in the book, because The book is just a wonderful blend of legal history and book history of really detailed explanations of book formats and of specific legal cases like the one above that I just spoke about um, involving ordinary people. But before we get into more of that, uh, we do need to talk about one book in particular, The Great Ching Code, which this farmer in this case seems to have known something a little about. Um, Because this, the code, is so very important in your book, I wonder if you could say a little bit about it. So what is the code and what do listeners need to know about the information it contains and how it's organized to understand, really, the rest of your book? Uh, Okay, great. Thank you. So the Gracing Code is basically the the center, one of the centers of my my book, of course. And the Gracing Code... Uh, is definitely the most important book in the Qing legal world. Uh, it contains almost all the important penal and, le- uh, and the civil laws promulgated uh, by the central government. Uh, and uh, the main content of the imperial editions of the code uh, were composed of uh, status and substatus. Uh, so the statutes, uh, Lü, uh, were usually fundamental uh, legal principles. Uh, in the Greeting Code, uh, there were around over uh, 400 uh, different uh, statues uh, in the code. And those statues were uh, constant and they were 
seldom uh, changed by the state. And many of the statutes in the code are very old. Uh, uh, actually, the Qing code actually uh, inherited a lot of statutes from the Tang code, uh, which was promulgated in the 7th century. Uh, and uh, in addition to uh, statutes, there were a large number of sub-statutes. So the last edition of the Qing Code contained a little bit less than 2,000 uh, different sub-statutes. And those sub-statutes, they, reflecting, uh, they reflected more about uh, changing imperial policies and the social uh, environment. So the, the sub-statutes, in comparison with the statutes, they were more specific and open uh, ad hoc. And so, of course, those are the, the main content of the imperial editions of the code. And uh, uh, for the commercial editions, uh, in, in addition to those statutes and sub-statutes, those commercial editions, they include a lot more legal information than the imperially authorized ones, uh, such as the uh, a large number of uh, private statutory commentaries, case precedents, uh, imperial edicts, administrative the administrative regulations and the cross index, etc. So uh, there was a huge differences uh, uh, between the imperial editions and the commercial editions in terms of the uh, the structure and the content. Uh, so and the, I think the most important feature of the Qing Code is that uh, the Qing Code is uh, updated quite frequently. Uh, so uh, since the mid Qianlong period. Uh, the uh, imperial editions of the code were designed to update it every five years with the revision and addition of new substatutes. And then the number of the substatutes uh, in the Qing code increased significantly from the early Qing to the late Qing. The number of the substatutes uh, actually increased from around a little bit over than 400 to nearly 2,000 uh, from the early Qing to the, to the end of the Qing period. And another uh, important thing about the code is that the, the code is the at the center of the Qing judicial administration. And all the officials were actually required to sentence legal cases according to the laws in the code, especially those serious cases that required automatic uh, judicial reviews uh, if the, the officials cite the wrong sentence or the, the, cite the wrong statutes or sub-statutes in those uh, legal cases, they will be uh, under very uh, serious administrative penalties. Perfect. So it's very, I mean, the code itself is, you know, the, the Qing state cares a lot about it. It's extremely important, as you just said, it's the center of the legal system, but it's always changing, which mm-hmm. becomes a challenge as you're trying to print, an, you know, updated yes, editions yes, exactly. of this thing. Great. So that sets us up really perfectly then for chapter one. Uh, Qing legislation and imperial editions of the Great Qing Code. And this chapter, I guess, looks at what you were interested in right at the beginning of your project. It looks at imperial editions of the code. And throughout this chapter, you really highlight how difficult and how largely um, inadequate, I guess, the process to produce imperial editions of the code was. Um, and But as you've just said, you've emphasized here that it wasn't because the Qing didn't care about the laws. They cared a lot about it. It was frequently updated. Um, But there was a challenge in getting enough copies of the right edition, the updated edition of the code in the right hands. So could you talk a little bit about this? So what are some of the problems that official publishing ran into as they were trying to produce 
um, imperial editions of the code. Okay, great. Thank you so much for this question. It's actually the start of my uh, book and also the start of my research, uh, the official publishing houses. Because when I was start writing this uh, research, writing the, this book, I was quite interested in the official publishing houses. I thought it was the main provider of the uh, legal books in the Qing bureaucracy, at least. But I found it's not the case because during the you know through the course of the the, the research uh, after I clicking and analyzing those. Uh, primary sources, the, the law books and the, the documents in the Qing uh, imperial publishing house, I found that uh, the uh, Qing official publishers, especially the, the Qing imperial uh, publishing house, the Wingdian Book Editing Department, uh, did not provide uh, enough editions of the code, uh, usable editions of the code uh, to the officials. So uh, uh, I actually have collected around 131 different editions of the, the code uh, printed in the Qing period. And among them, uh, 11 uh, were official editions. And among those 11 official editions, eight were published by the Wingdian Imperial Publishing House. So basically, the Wingdian is the major provider of the uh, official editions in the Qing period. So the first chapter focused on the imperial editions published by the Wingdian. So the Wingdian's problem is that the Wingdian is not a, a profit-oriented publishing agency. Uh, instead, it was a part of the Qing imperial government. It was the part of the Qing imperial household department. So the Wingdian was uh, bureaucratically run, and it was uh, bounded by all kinds of very rigid regulations, such as the price of the the, prim- the, the, the price of the materials actually set. And, and the, the, the number of the, 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 the craftsmen that the Wingdian could hire was set by those, by those regulations. So it was very rigid and it uh, uh, became a huge problem for the running of the Wingdian uh, in many cases. And because of those uh, all kinds of rigid regulations, the Wingdian was not a very efficient uh, publishing house. And... Uh, uh, it usually takes the Wingdian three to ten years to finish printing an edition of the code because the code is a very huge book. It's uh, you know included multiple volumes, so uh, even in the High Qing period, it took at least uh, three years for the Wingdian to publish an edition of the code. And the pr- the problem of the code is that the the, the code up, uh, updated quite uh, constantly. Uh, 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 the the sub statutes was updated uh, was updated every five years, so it might be uh you know quite the possibility that the the code was already outdated when we Indian finished publishing once. Uh, this is one problem, the inefficiency. Another problem is the limited printing run, and I, to my surprise, I found that. Uh, the Wingdian printed very limited number of editions, uh, very limited number of the copies of the, the imperial editions. For example, the very famous uh, 1740 edition, the, the Qianlong, uh, edition of the code published in the fifth of the Qianlong reign. And uh, this is during the Haiqing period when the Wingdian was at the height of its efficiency and uh, it was very financially secure. It's only uh, printed uh, 350 copies uh, of the uh, Qing code. Uh, so it's a very limited number. Uh, and it's only issued for uh, two high-ranking officials, uh, only 
like the uh, provincial level officials uh, or above could get uh, some access to the Yingbian editions. And those uh, sub-provincial officials, they, were, they don't have any access to the Yingbian editions. And also, this is the, uh, the, the, in the Haiqing period, uh, in the, the problem became even worse after the Qianlong reign because of all kinds of budget cut and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the other things happening in the Wingdian. The, the, the efficiency of the Wingdian also, uh, also declined significantly after the Qianlong reign. And also, it, together with that, there was a declining of the printing quality of the code. The imperial editions of the code uh, published in the uh, 19th century uh, as I, you know, uh, describe in those uh, in in the in the, in the book is very terrible. It's even much worse than the commercial editions. Many of the pages were uh, difficult to read, and there were a lot of blurry characters. And uh, the the woodblock were usually not recutted for uh, decades, and uh, there was a uh, cracks on, on on different kinds of uh, you know woodblocks, which is which make the, the reading even more difficult. So, so in other words, the pre, uh, the the pro, the major problem of the Wing Dian is is inefficiency, is limited printing run, and also the declining printing quality. And uh, in other words, the the imperial publishing house, uh, uh, in the Qing period, they did not provided, uh, they did not provide enough usable and updated editions of the code. Uh, to his, uh, you know, officials in the bureaucracy, let alone the readers in the society. Perfect. Thank you. And, you know, as you just said there, things are never great, and then they only get worse. <laughs> it's, really, <laughs> it's really the story of imperial printing. It's never, it's never good enough, and then it just gets worse. And then you have things like, you know, climate and woodblock cracking to just add insult to injury. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Thank you. And with that, then we come to chapter two, and this is really where we get to the solution, I guess, to the problem of imperial printing, commercial printing. And as you said, uh, when you started off this project, you started with imperial, you then realized commercial played such a role. And that's really how these chapters sort of work together then. And this chapter looks at commercial publications of the code. And here you explain as you've said already here, uh, that there are far more commercial editions of uh, commercial editions. They were updated much more frequently. Uh, Commercial editions had a broader range of target readers. They contain much more supplementary information and they were printed by a number of different publishers. So the market appears to have been pretty competitive. And this chapter moves largely chronologically and you talk about a number of different editions. Um, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the people, the men involved in commercial publications, particularly the ones doing the editing and the proofreading, the private legal advisors. So could you talk a little bit about these advisors? Who are they? Why are they getting involved in commercial publishing? And what role do they play in the Qing legal system? Okay, so this is a great question. So those private legal secretaries, they were the major editors and the proofreaders of the commercial editions of the code and all the other law books printed in the Qing period, actually. <laughs> and those uh, private legal secretaries or, or you know, private legal advisors, they were more openly 
uh, known as private legal sectories. Uh, in Chinese, it's called muyou or shiye. And those people, they were true legal experts. And they were viewed as backbones of the Qing legal system. And uh, uh, most of them, they uh, received years of legal training. And those official, uh, those private legal secretaries or those private legal advisors, they were not officials, but uh, they were hired by officials to deal with all kinds of legal, administrative, and financial uh, paperwork in the Qing uh, government. So they had access to updated legal information, usually circulated in the form of single document uh, in the government. So in other words, those private legal advisors, they were not officials, but they had access to updated legal information circulated in the government. And the, most of those uh, private legal advisors, uh, they came from the lower Yangtze area, the major urban centers uh, in the Jiangnan area. And the, most of them, uh, uh, they have some sort of uh, civil service examination degrees, like the Shengyuan degrees, but uh, also most of them, they fail to pass the higher level of the civil service examinations. So they were literatists, but lo lower, uh, lower literatists, they have a very robust legal knowledge and they work for the Qing government, but they are not part of, uh, they were not a formal part of the Qing government. And the, why they were involved in commercial publishing and one thing is that, I think important thing is that they have the knowledge. They were the, the true legal experts in the Qing period. And the, in addition to that, uh, I think uh, printing and selling those law books, including the Great Qing Code, was very profitable. That's why many of different private legal uh, advisors, they engage in uh, editing uh, and uh, you know composing, uh, compiling those uh, law books, including the Greeting Code. Uh, uh, and they have also some ideological background of uh, those involvement in uh, commercial publishing of those uh, private legal advisors. They generally thought that uh, editing those code uh, was a great contribution to the judicial system. And it was also beneficial to the society. So. They thought they were good. they were not only you know profit from editing and and the uh, publishing of those uh, legal books, but also they thought uh, they were doing a good job uh, to the legal system as well as to the society. Uh, in addition to that, uh, one another very important thing for them uh, uh, for their involvement in publishing. Uh, the code is that it is a good channel for them to build a reputation uh, in order to get a good uh, you know, job opportunities and uh, to gain other sorts of uh, cultural capitals through publishing. Because uh, as uh, Chen Li pointed out uh, in his research on those private legal advisors, the job market for the private legal sector is especially uh, in the uh, uh, since the mid Qing period was very competitive, and uh, around like only ten percent of the people who uh, received years of uh, legal training could actually get a job. Uh, so it is very difficult for a, a private legal sector, a private legal advisor, to uh, get a job. And uh, publishing a you know publishing a book or uh, involved in a, a 
uh, editorial board in a commercial editions of the code was a very good channel for them to uh, build uh, their reputation as a legal expert. So many of the le- leading legal experts in the late Qianlong and the Jiaqing period, uh, they formed a very large editorial boards uh, in those commercial editions of the code. And in those large edit- uh, editorial boards, they included many of their students, uh, sons and other relatives and friends. And I think this is a way for them uh, to uh, help those junior members of those legal uh, experts to build a reputation and in order to uh, you know, get a job uh, in the future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Perfect. So it helps them, society at large, and possibly people that they know. <laughs> sort of the three different three different groups of people or, you know, groups that it could impact. Perfect. And one thing you mentioned it here, one thing that really stood out to me in this chapter is the fact that these legal advisors, legal, legal secretaries are involved, it adds a real geographic dimension because they are all, you know, located in the, the best legal advisors are all located in the same area. They're all based in Hangzhou, which means that most of the commercial editions of the code were printed in this area. So it adds like an, an interesting geographic dimension to this, um, which I think is really interesting, especially when we get to the chapter that compares um, what commercial printing looked like in China to what commercial printing looked like in Europe and England in particular. So it's a, it's a, it's a great part of this chapter. So with that, then we move to chapter three. Um, And here we switch gears a little and you look at reading of the code. And this is really a two-part chapter. So the first part looks at what readers said about reading the code. Um, And here you look at handbooks for officials published in the Qing, how they encouraged officials to read the code carefully, assured them that if they read it and read it carefully, their knowledge would Um, not only scare away people looking to make false accusations, it would also be a good way for the official to cultivate themselves. Mm -hmm. And the second part of this chapter looks at the physical aspects of, you know, of the book, of the code, and how this influenced the experience of the readers. And here in particular, you're focusing on the printing format and the organization of the text, Um, in particular, the three register format, which became the standard for commercial editions. So in this format, the book is divided, um, the page is divided into three parts, uh, three registers, and the original text of the code is at the bottom. Commentaries, precedents, and administrative regulations are in the middle. And at the top, you have a cross index. Uh, So, and this is a really interesting format. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the format and how it sort of changed and influenced how readers approach the code? Okay, thank you. So um, multiple register printing format was a product of a commercial publishing boom uh, since the late Ming period. So those multiple register printing format became quite popular among commercial publishers 
since the late Ming period. And at the beginning, those multiple register printing format uh, was used in printing uh, popular genres uh, such as drama, miscellaneous, and everyday encyclopedias. Uh, however, uh, in the Qing period, uh, this you know printing format was adopted by many commercial publishers to publish more serious genres uh, like the greeting code. So uh, the the printing format of the commercial editions of the code also uh, experienced very uh, important transformations from the early Qing to the mid Qing period. So uh, in the early Qing period, most of the uh, commercial publishers uh, they still adopt single register printing format. Uh, for example, all the commercial editions that I have seen uh, that printed in the Shunzhi period, uh, they use the single register printing format. However, things uh, started to change uh, in the Kangxi uh, period and later. So in the Kangxi period and the Yongzheng period, many of the commercial editions, they adopted uh, two register printing format. And since the late Qianlong period, they uh, started using the uh, three register printing format. And uh, so uh, I think there are several uh, reasons uh, for the publishers to adopt uh, three register printing format uh, in printing you know, uh, commercial editions of the books. But one thing is that if you are using those multiple register printing format, you can include a lot more text uh, in the uh, in in a single page, then the single register printing format. It was a method for the commercial publishers uh, to lower the production cost of the books. Another another thing of, about the multi-register printing format is that those multi-register printing format not only in the code but also in other genres like the fictions, like the the everyday encyclopedia, is usually uh, a, a, a sign of innovation, uh, because they could those editors they were more they were you know they have the more freedom to add uh, additional text in those uh, in the, in those uh, you know original text uh, and those a uh, way uh, method for those commercial publishers to attract readers. Another thing is that uh, in the uh, the text uh, in the different registers when they printed on the same page. Uh, it uh, it is uh, is a method for the uh, publisher or the editor uh, for them to print to provide more choice uh, for the readers. So uh, the different the text in different registers, their their relationship was very complicated. And in some of the genres, like a drama miscellaneous, because those uh, they the they they printed different uh, uh, different. Uh, text in different registers. For example, one of the uh, the the books I, I that I, I read on the upper register, they printed uh, the uh, uh, one fiction, and the, in the lower register is print uh, the, the editor printed another fiction. So the the text in the different registers, there was you know there was a lot of computation of attention of the readers when they read uh, the the single page, and uh, for the code. Uh, the computation was still there. However, there was also a, a other, uh, you know, a science of cooperation because uh, the statutes and the sub-statutes printed in the bottom of the, uh, of the register, uh, they could usually 
be interpreted and uh, you know explained by the commentaries, uh, case precedents, and other source of legal information printed in the middle and upper registers. So, uh, in other words, in the code, I think the uh, three uh, register printing format uh, transform the way of readers uh, reading the code. For well, one thing is that it's much easier for readers to locate different statutes and sub-statutes throughout the code. And it's, it, especially the cross-index uh, printed in the upper register is a very convenient tool for the readers uh, to find different statutes and sub-statutes in the code in order to compare uh, the meanings of them and in order to you know, choose the correct one for uh, sentencing uh, legal cases. This is one thing. Another thing is that uh, the uh, uh, the multiple register printing format uh, they enhance the judicial authority of uh, private uh, commentaries and case precedents uh, because those uh, private commentaries and case precedents they were collected and selected uh, by those leading legal experts. Uh, those private legal sectors in the Hangzhou area, and they collect them, and they select them, and they print it in the middle registers. Uh, and in the lower registers, there were statutes and sub-statutes. So when they printed those private, private commentaries and the case precedents with those imperially promulgated statutes and sub-statutes, it's a significant way for them to enhance the reliability and the authority of those private uh, commentaries and the case precedents, and uh, uh, and it's not only enhanced the authority, but also uh, enable or made it much uh, easier for readers to get access to those uh, private commentaries and case precedents. And those, though many of those uh, commentaries and case precedents, uh, they interpreted or reinterpreted the meaning and application of those imperially promulgated statutes and sub-statutes. Uh, printed in the lower register. So uh, this is a very important way for how the commercial editions of the code uh, change the judicial practice and the, the meaning of the law in the Qing period. Absolutely, and fundamentally changed the way that readers read the code, right? By yes. <laughs> by by inserting themselves, by making the code something to be navigated, to be selected from, to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, I I thought this was a really great chapter filled with really really fascinating uh, moments and insights about the ways in which that format really does matter. Um, I thought this was a great chapter. Oh, thank you. Perfect. Uh, this moves us on then to chapters four and five, and these are really different chapters and they deal with very different material, uh, but they both look at ways that ordinary people could access the information in the code. So I thought that we would deal with them sort of together here. And chapter four focuses on popular legal handbooks which unlike uh, officially printed editions of the code are really targeted towards the very the lower end of the book market so they were aimed at non-elite readers and they were supposed to be practical they were cheaply made and they present information about the code in a simplified easy to understand format 
So readers who don't know anything really about the code would be able to follow it, learn the laws and know what to include if they wanted to write an accusation. So, you know, they cover things like how to write an accusation, 10 easy mistakes you could make, um, sample, they include sample samples of different things you might want to write. Um, and my personal favorite uh, the statute's presented in rhyming song style, which is a format I would like to come back, if please. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a great format. Um, but, you know, in, as simple as the handbooks make the law in this chapter, you, the person who reads it still has to be able to read it. And this is really where chapter five comes in, which looks at community lectures. So the main way through which illiterate people could get inf- could get accurate information about the law. And here you emphasize that these lectures, which included in the Qing, reading the statutes and substatutes from the code, played a key role in state-sponsored popular legal education. And one part of this chapter that I really want to highlight for readers here is that not only are you looking at lectures in China proper, you also touch on lectures um, that were delivered in frontier regions. So you mentioned that these lectures were of particular importance to the state as the state viewed legal education as a key instrument in moral uh, transformation, which was, as the state saw it, something that the frontier regions needed. And as a whole, these two chapters really show that uh, the common people common people in the Qing had access to accurate legal information, even if they couldn't read and even if they lived in frontier regions. So there's a lot going on in these chapters. I've really barely touched the very top of the surface um, in my summary there. But is there anything that you really want to emphasize and point out to readers here? Anything that you think is particularly important for the work that you're doing in this part of the book? Okay, thank you for uh, these questions. So the first three chapters in the book uh, deal with the professional legal knowledge in the code. And the last two chapters, as you have mentioned, focus on the uh, popular legal knowledge and the dissemination of popular legal knowledge in the Qin society. And for the chapter four, popular legal handbooks, uh, I want to emphasize a little bit, uh, you know, in this in this chapter is the importance of legal knowledge because there were many very excellent uh, previous scholarship on those popular legal handbooks, and uh, but most of those, uh, you know, previous scholarship they focus on the litigation knowledge, uh, and also they focus on the main editions. And my chapter here uh, focus instead on the legal knowledge in those. Uh, popular legal handbooks. And also I focus on the Qing editions, especially the Thunder Stato's Heaven editions, the Jing the Tianlei editions. So I basically argue that in this in this chapter, the popular in those popular legal handbooks, the legal knowledge was uh, as important uh, as those litigation knowledge. And the, the most important thing about those Qing editions of, about uh, the uh, you know the Qing editions of those popular legal handbooks is the increasing uh, importance of legal knowledge uh, in those Qin uh, handbooks in comparison with the late Ming editions. There were a lot more accurate legal knowledge in those Qin editions and, uh, and the many of the important editions, including the Thunder uh, Startles, the Heaven editions, they included a large number of statues and sub-statues. Uh, uh, copied from the Great Qing Code. I think one thing contributed 
uh, to this uh, increasing importance of the legal knowledge in the Qing editions uh, is that uh, the legal knowledge itself played a more important uh, role in the Qing judicial system, especially in the Qing uh, local judicial practice, uh, local legal practice, uh, because of the uh, higher, uh, because of the, the you know the stress of the Qing uh, judicial system uh, in the Qing in the mid since the mid Qing period, the, the acceptance rate of the those uh, legal cases, or especially lawsuits. Uh, filed by those local people was declining in the late Qing period. So it is very difficult for those litigants to get their uh, legal cases uh, or lawsuits accepted by the local uh, courts in the mid and late Qing period. So their strategy is to emphasize a lot more, you know, a lot more on the laws and how their lawsuits uh, was filed according to some sort of uh, statutes or sub-statutes uh, in, the, in the code so that it is easier for the officials uh, to accept their lawsuits and it's easier for the officials to actually sentence uh, the lawsuits. This is, this is one thing. Another thing is that because the, the publishers or the editors of those uh, uh, popular legal handbooks in the Qing period they have more access to the code because of the flourishing commercial publications of the code in the Qing period. I think that that's one of another reason uh, for the increasing uh, number of accurate, uh, you know, legal knowledge and, and the legal information in those uh, uh, popular legal handbooks. So. Uh, for the fifth chapter, the, the five, uh, chapter five, the community uh, lectures, I think, uh, this, the, the most interesting part of the, this, uh, lecture, uh, those community lectures, uh, when I was, you know, doing the research on this chapter, I was actually, a, a, you know, uh, well, I was, I was surprised by the, the, the volume of information in those community uh, lectures because at the beginning I thought it was you know with other scholars in the previous scholarship those community lectures they were usually emphasized uh, as a moral education or moral uh, indoctrination but after examining those uh, many different editions of uh, those uh, community uh, lecture manuals I find that there were a large number of very accurate legal knowledge were uh, contained uh, in those uh, community lectures, and uh, those uh, lecturers uh, was requested by the government uh, to uh, read aloud a large number of simplified statutes and sub-statutes from the code uh, to the readers. And uh, in some of the community lectures, they even translate those uh, statutes and sub-statutes into the local dialects or into the colloquial language and provide a lot of explanations uh, and even the uh, the case uh, precedents or the legal cases uh, associated with those statutes and sub-statutes in, uh, in, in those lectures. So I was kind of uh, uh, surprised by the, 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 rich, the richness of the legal information uh, contained in those uh, community legal lectures. And I was also uh, very, uh, you know, when I was doing this, uh, writing this uh, uh, chapter, I was also uh, very interested, as you mentioned, those uh, legal lectures uh, in those frontier regions and was used a very 
uh, uh, measure uh, method for those Qing officials to transform the local society uh, in the frontier regions. Perfect. And I think it really comes out in chapter five, but I, I think feel like I should say that it sort of runs throughout a lot of these chapters, the idea that legal knowledge is something that can, you know, that is beneficial for local people that can transform them, that knowing the laws and knowing how to, to obey them will somehow make uh, local people more law uh, abiding. That's something that we see coming through a number of these chapters. And, you know, there is some pushback. You have some debate about emperors who, you know, disagree that uh, mm-hmm. telling the people about the laws will only make them, you know, find out ways to break them and know the right yeah. exact <laughs> way that they can get around them. But, you know, this this idea that laws are somehow transformative, that knowing about them is a good thing, um, is something that comes through a lot of these chapters, but particularly here. And the other great thing, of course, about Chapter 5 is with the community lectures, there are some great illustrations included in this book of those community (laughs) lectures. So I feel like I should uh, highlight them here uh, because I really enjoyed looking at those. Uh, So thank you for including them. Thank you. (laughs) So with this, then, we move to the conclusion. Um, But your conclusion actually does a lot of really important work uh, because this is really a comparative look at the impact of print uh, in Europe, and in particular England um, and China. And listeners familiar with scholarship on the impact of print in Europe will know that printing is considered to have been an agent of change in early modern England. And you point out that it was also, you know, it also had a transformative impact in China, but in this case, the change itself, you know, the nature of the change and what the change looks like is quite different because it's not as it was in England, a technological innovation that's driving the change, but it's the increased volume of circulation, increased ease of production, and you know, an enthusiasm for increased consumption that creates um, a transformation. And I was wondering, actually, if you could talk about this chapter as a whole. So what, is, what was it that made you decide to write this kind of comparative chapter? And what is you know, the intervention that you're trying to make with this chapter in terms of print culture and book history? Well, that's a good question, because at the beginning, so the first manuscript of the of my book, actually, the, the conclusion chapter is just a regular conclusion chapter. It's the summary of the whole book. Uh, but uh, thanks to the suggestions of one of my readers of the book, and uh, uh, he or she suggested that it is a waste of you know space to summarize the book again in the conclusion chapter. So uh, I decided to write something else, you know, more about the conclusion. And also, uh, I received some advice uh, from my colleagues uh, at the University of Maryland uh, from other fields because they. Uh, this addressed it. it is a very important topic and a very interesting topic. Uh, and uh, the uh, the printing revolution not only happened in China, but also happened in other parts of the world in the early modern period. So what are the differences and the similarities of the impact of the printing on law and legal culture? So when I you know, combined those two uh, you know, suggestions from the readers and from my colleagues, and I, I, I think it's a... Uh, uh, in the conclusion part, uh, in the in the revision process, I think it is you know a, a good choice for me to write something about comparison 
instead of the regular summary of the entire book. So that's the start of the comparative chapter uh, in my in my book. And uh, I find after the comparison, you know, uh, some some sort of the uh, the work about the comparison, I, I find it was quite uh, you know. Uh, I was very, very interested to see that the impact of the uh, the printing revolution in China and in early modern England was quite different in many ways. But uh, there were there were a lot of also uh, other you know similarities in how the you know uh, how the printing revolution or the in in China the commercial printing boom in the, since the late Ming period uh, transformed the law. So for for example, I find there are a lot of similarities in England and in China in the early modern period in terms of the uh, the the impact of the printing on law and the legal system, such as the transformation. Those impacts uh, include the, the the broader dissemination of legal information and the transformation of legal experts, and also the printing also changed the laws, uh, especially in terms of the rise of the importance of the case precedents. Uh, in the judicial practices, even though even though the law and the legal system in China uh, and in early modern England were quite different, however, the impact was sort of similar. Uh, was uh, this is very interesting for me to see another very interesting part. You know, part why do the comparison was the the level of the state control. Actually, this is actually very different from what I expected. Um, when I started to the to do the comparison between China and and England, I thought that China, you know, the Qing the Qing period is a, a Qing China was a very uh, authoritarian state and was very infamous for its literary, uh, you know, inquisition and other things. So I, I at the beginning I thought that the Qing could have more control over the the circulation and dissemination of legal information. Uh, however, after the comparison. I find it is astonishing that the Qing has, in, in comparison with the control of the legal information and the legal printing, I find that the Qing has much less control over the uh, the law printing as well as the dissemination of legal information in the society. The Qing has much less regulations, and the the, the legal information was circulated more free, freely in China than uh, in England. And the England has a much more successful and long-term control over the uh, information uh, in service of the interests of the state uh, through the establishing of uh, establishment of the law publishing monopoly and other regulations. But the Qing did not have any sort of the monopoly, the state monopoly on the uh, law publishing or disseminating of legal information. That the the so in other words, uh, the the Qing people. Have more, you know. I think they have more freely access to the, uh, you know, legal information that were not in the control of the state. Absolutely, and my favorite part of this chapter was really on that point when you talk about, you know, the Qing market being broader, more competitive, more dynamic, and a lot less regulated. Um, in part because of the, you know, the inability of the Qing to be truly authoritarian when it comes to control of the print of of what is printed, um, and also in terms of where and how publishers are scattered. You know, very much unlike in England, where publishers are in London uh, and where the law book industry was under strict state and industry regulations. Um, I thought this was a really 
great chapter and a really useful um, part of the book. I can imagine it being very easily um, used uh, with students who don't work on uh, print and printing and law books, even um, in China, but who are you know, who come, who are more familiar with the European case, I can see it being a really useful intervention um, with students of that, of that sort. So I really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't think it was a, I'm, I'm glad in a way that, that the, <laughs> that the conclusion changed so much. Um, I'm guessing it was reviewer two who suggested you change it because it seems to always be reviewer two. Um, but uh, I thought it was a great addition to the book as a whole. Thank um, you. And that really brings us then to the very final part of the book, the epilogue. And this book is, the epilogue in particular is really beautiful. It ties the book up so nicely because it brings us full circle back to the case that I mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation, which starts off the book. And that's the case of the farmer who killed his wife and another man and made it look like it fell under the killing the the, uh, adulterous lover statute. Uh, so to finish, I was hoping you might just say a few words about uh, this case and the question that you raise in this chapter, how do you think the farmer knew about this particular statute? How could a peasant in Shandong come to know enough about this specific law to carry, you know, to murder his wife and another man in this way? Okay, thank you for this question. So from the documents on Du Huailiang's case or the farmers, uh, you know, the peasant who killed uh, the, uh, his wife and the and the you know another man's case. There was no documents about you know the answer to this question. And uh, uh, from the case, uh, the the officials uh, who are you know dealing with those uh, dealing with this case, he was uh, they were not surprised that this peasant n- knew about the law. And also, uh, this peasant was not the only one knew about uh, this law quite well. Actually, after he uh, he did the murder, uh, he talked with one of his uncles who was living, you know, nearby. Uh, before they filed the case to the county magistrate's court, and his uncle was also knew about law quite well, according to the documents, because the uh, the uncle told uh, the murder that okay, if you kill them, you know, both of them at the place, you pro uh, you, at the at the at the scene of adultery. You would not be, you know, it's not a serious deal for you. So I think a lot of people, you know, in the in this case, uh, they they knew about the law, and the officials were were not surprised that those people knew about the law. So this actually, uh, you know, go back to the question, uh, how the peasant, uh, you know, at the time, uh, could know about the laws. So the whole book actually tried to answer this question, uh. Because uh, I argue that in the book, uh, in the Qing period, thanks to the uh, commercial publishing boom and the thanks to community uh, lectures in the Qing period, uh, the Qing people they have uh, they had unprecedentedly disseminate you know uh, access to all sorts of legal information uh, in the society. So for the peasants, uh, you know, like Du Huailiang, they could get you know, all sorts of legal information uh, from popular imprints, uh, like the popular legal handbooks. Uh, they could also get access to the uh, to the law through, you know, other oral channels, such as st- storytelling, such as novels, uh, such as also the community legal lectures, etc. So 
uh, the whole point in this book is that uh, if uh, even if we don't know the specific answer of how the peasant himself in this case uh, got access to the knowledge about this law, but the population in general, even the commoners, they could have all different kinds of access to relatively accurate legal information in the Qing period, thanks to those commercial legal imprints, as well as the community legal lectures. Perfect. And if he didn't, if he didn't know firsthand, his uncle might, or his other uncle might, or someone mm-hmm. else in his family might. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, th- I thought this particular case, beginning with it and ending in it in this way, I think really um, drove as you just laid out there, the main sort of thrust of the book, that legal knowledge circulated in the Chang (laughs) home really beautifully. I thought it was a great way to end. And now that we've come to the end of the book, we're also at the end of our conversation. So now that you're done with this book, and congratulations on being done with it, what (laughs) what are you working on now? What is inspiring you at the moment? Uh, okay, so I'm working on the uh, so I'm interested in the law and the information, and I kept uh, I keep my interest in my next research project. So one was researching the uh, the dissemination of legal information in the Qing period. Uh, I noticed uh, there was a special genre in the Qing period called public notices. Uh, in Chinese, it's called Gao Shi Gao Bai Jie Tie or Chang uh, Hong. So it's what, uh, those public notices, they were usually posted on the walls or gates or other public places. And uh, those public notices was one of the most important channels in the Qing for the dissemination of information in the local society. And uh, so I'm working on those public notices. And uh, those public notices, they, they were ranging from a, a, a broad genre of you know, documents, including the imperial or official uh, proclamations uh, to the public notices written by local gentries or uh, to uh, the legal, uh, to the illegal anonymous public public notices posted usually by those commoners. And uh, in the, in this summer, I I was, uh, I'm uh, going to write a paper about uh, anonymous uh, public notices, uh, you know, published, uh, usually posted by those commoners and the uh, people from the lower end of the society. Uh, I have collected around 70 cases about those anonymous public notices uh, cases in the Qianlong and the Jiaqing period. And in those cases, uh, most of those cases, they involved very serious punishment because posting those anonymous, publish, uh, anonymous public notices was a serious crime a capital crime in the Qing period. So I was wondering why those people, uh, uh, you know, produce those uh, public notices and uh, how, uh, where and how uh, did they post them and how the state try to control uh, the uh, public notices as well as the information contained in those public notices and uh, as well as the evolution of the laws and regulations regarding those public notices in the local society. Perfect. So it sounds like you have your summer all planned out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it'll be a fascinating paper and possibly other, you know, any whatever else comes from that. Um, so I look very much forward to reading that and any any and all stories that are included in that. Thank um, you. So 
thank you. I wish you best of luck with that. Uh, thank you so much again for writing this book and for coming on to talk with me about it. Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the you know enjoy the time. <laughs>